Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Chris Hedges, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and best-selling author. Chris spent nearly two decades as a correspondent reporting from more than 50 countries. He spent 15 years at the New York Times and more recently was teaching in the New Jersey prison system. It's a fantastic conversation between me and Chris, a lifelong journalist, a person who's seen the way that media has changed from something that's in the service of people, something that's about transparent communication and investigation. Gone are the days of Bernstein and Woodward. Now has the media simply become the propaganda arm of the state corporate world? It's a fantastic conversation. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Chris, thank you very much for joining us on Under the Skin. Sure. What's been unique, would you say, about reporting on the Ukrainian conflict? Are you finding any unique challenges, given that it's a, a military conflict? Are you finding a, any uh, corollary between the restrictions on reporting in the last couple of years domestically and, and internationally and what's immediately occurring in this conflict? What, what challenges are you facing in trying to tell stories and trying to be, I don't know, truthful as best you can at the moment? Have you noticed a rise in censorship, dissemination? What, what have you observed? Well, I've been a victim of the rise in censorship. I just had all my shows six years of shows erased, disappeared from YouTube. Uh, they had been broadcast on RT, where I was kind of forced into. I had been on Telesur before. Telesur crashed and burned with the collapse of the Venezuelan economy. The right-wing government in Argentina would no longer fund it. RT picked it up. Um, there's not one show on Russia. Uh, but when you take positions such as mine, I'm a strong supporter of BDS. I spent seven years in the Middle East. I was the Middle East bureau chief for the New York Times, much of that time in Gaza. So yeah, the censorship is there, and then we can get into the algorithms and the shadow banning and all that kind of stuff, which we were victim of before. But going to Ukraine. So I was in Eastern Europe in 1989. Uh, I covered the revolutions and the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, number one, we all thought NATO was obsolete. Uh, NATO was designed to prevent Soviet expansion into Eastern and Central Europe. Uh, we also thought there would be a peace dividend. That's what they told us. Uh, we understood that expanding NATO beyond the borders of a unified Germany was an unnecessary provocation. And that wasn't uh, a political position that was embraced by Margaret Thatcher, uh, Hans Dietrich Genscher, the foreign minister uh, at the time in uh, Germany, uh, the, uh, Reagan administra uh, the Reagan administration uh, with Secretary of State James Baker. Everyone got it. That there was, uh, in fact, they were talking with Gorbachev about uh, integrating or at least beginning to give Russia membership or observer status at NATO and eventually uh, either integrating into NATO or some kind of unified security alliance. So I was there. And to begin to speak about that historical context and the provocation that the expansion of NATO uh, would be to Russia, which was broadly understood. In fact, George Kennan, the great uh, Soviet uh, specialist uh, later called uh, the expansion of NATO uh, the, the gravest mistake uh, in, in post-Cold uh, War history. Uh, so uh, 14 countries now, and Ukraine is a de facto member of NATO. It had a, all sorts of NATO advisors, 
it now has hundreds, it was getting military equipment before, it now is getting hundreds of millions of dollars of military equipment. Uh, that doesn't excuse what Russia did, but to deal in that kind of historical truth or to speak with that kind of nuance, uh, run straight into the kind of jingoistic sh cheerleading uh, that uh, is uh, that dominates the media landscape, uh, doesn't matter whether it's Fox or anywhere else. And of course, reminds me very much of the Iraq war. I was very outspoken against uh, the calls to invade Iraq, lost my job at the New York Times for that when they demanded I stop speaking out about the war and I refuse. So uh, there is this kind of, they drink dark from this, this dark elixir of nationalism and exceptionalism and, and I think moral purity, of course, it's all uh, there, it, of course, with this vast historical amnesia where we ignore the crimes that uh, we carried out, uh, which dwarfed up, up to this point, anything Putin's done in the Ukraine in, in the Middle East. So it's, it feels, Chris, like you're describing a creeping sensorial fog that initially, you know, 20 years ago, whenever that was, was sufficient to drive you from the New York Times. But now, even when you find yourself in the, in territories like ours, in a media enclave like RT, even this place is subject to sensorial encroachment to, to the point where it feels like a kind of totalitarianism. I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, voices like yours and Caitlin Johnston, voices that are critical of, um, you know, sort of Western support of Ukraine or critical of NATO's historic, potentially veiled imperialism as a kind of, as, uh, as irresponsible voices that don't acknowledge a, a, a kind of a truer or darker or more, more potent tyranny, you know, uh, under Putin than anything that we could possibly appreciate or understand in the West, that this is a somehow a unique and distinct type of tyranny, I, I, which I recognise is very similar to what we said about Saddam Hussein when it was necessary and relevant to say that about Saddam Hussein. Do you, do they have a point or are they just trying to cling to some like neoliberal um, moral superiority at a time when it feels like there's very little for those voices to cling to? No, it's, it's historical amnesia. So for them, time stops in 1945 everybody who appeases, everybody becomes the new Hitler, or Putin's the new Hitler, or Saddam Hussein's the new Hitler, anybody who carries out any kind of appeasement, appeasement uh, or refuses to go to war, uh, it's uh, the, just a, a redo of the 1938 Munich Agreement and they're the new Neville Chamberlain. I mean, this is the whole neocons. I wrote a column, uh, it's on chrisedges.substack.com where I have now moved because I don't have anywhere else to move. That's where Matt Taibbi is and my friend Glenn Greenwald. So uh, uh, it's called the pimps of war. These people have been shilling for war for decades. I have ran into them in Central America. I covered the war in El Salvador and I covered the war with the Contras, uh, illegally funded by the Reagan administration in Nicaragua. And they're the same players, Elliot Abrams, or Robert Kagan, they're all there. Uh, and they use the same rhetoric. But th this, of course, just ignores uh, all sorts of interventions coup d'etats, uh, manipulations, uh, CIA assassinations that characterize the Cold War from the end of World War II up to the present, whether uh, overthrowing governments in Indonesia, uh, Guatemala, uh, Iran, uh, democratically elected Mossadegh, 
uh, Chile, where, of course, the CIA orchestrated the assassination of the Army Chief of Staff, along with President Salvador Allende. Uh, it, 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 it is, uh, it, it, it's just, uh, it's a kind of knee-jerk uh, rhetorical feint that works because they're heavily funded by the arms industry, the, the Brookings Institution, uh, uh, the uh, Mer uh, American Enterprise Institute, uh, uh, Project for a New Century, which has closed down and been rebranded. I mean, all this stuff is uh, lavishly funded by the arms industry because these are the pimps for the arms industry. So when you go up against that, and, and they have complete domination of the airwaves. It doesn't matter whether it's MSNBC or CNN or Fox, it doesn't matter. Uh, and when you go up against that monolith, uh, they work very hard to shut you down, especially in my case, where I, uh, I was working for the New York Times, I was overseas for 20 years, I covered all of these conflicts. I was seven years in the Middle East, I speak Arabic, uh, and that is uh, absolutely unpalatable. So they work very, very hard to shut you out. And some people say, well, how can these people hang around when they were wrong about everything, the war in Iraq and everything else? Well, they hang around because they're courtiers, because uh, they carry water for uh, the ruling neoliberal establishment and for uh, the war industry. How does it make you feel emotionally that you have dedicated your life to exposing those kind of truths, that you've devoted to the point where you speak Arabic, where you worked in those territories, and now you've been um, kind of maligned and sidelined. Do you feel like you've been sort of personally, emotionally, and professionally mistreated? No, because I understood the centers of power and I understood the cost. And that really comes from my father, who was a World War II vet. He was in North Africa, came back virtually a pacifist from the war, became a minister, very outspoken uh, against the war in Vietnam, uh, he very strong support of the civil rights movement. We lived in an all-white farm town where Martin Luther King was one of the most hated men in America. I remember people walking out of his sermons. I remember the anger uh, that it engendered. And then he spoke out uh, very early on for uh, GBLTQ rights because his brother, my uncle, was gay, and, and he was very close to his brother and saw the pain of being a gay man in America in the 1950s and 60s. The church kind of threw him out for that. And, uh, and uh, that was a good lesson for me, that when you truly take a moral stance, when you truly stand with the oppressed, you are going to get treated like the oppressed. So that gave me a kind of armor. I mean, when I was called in and given my formal reprimand from the New York Times and under guild rules, you where that's union rules, you give the employee the reprimand, and then when they violate it, uh, you have grounds to fire them. Uh, but I knew that I had a choice. I could pay fealty to my career and muzzle myself, but to do so would be to betray my father. Uh, and I remember walking out of 229 West 43rd Street, where the New York Times was located, and, and I think articulating for the first time what it was my father had given me, and that was freedom. I didn't need the imprintur of the New York Times to tell me who I was. I knew who I was. I was my father's son. Uh, and that has been the greatest gift that my father has given me. So there are no surprises. Uh, I don't want to betray my dad. I, I don't want, it really comes down to being that personal. You know, I often say, uh, you know, I, I also graduated from a seminary. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't buy into the physical resurrection. But, you know, I often say they're, they're his words and, and my voice. Uh, and, uh, and that really gives you, I think, a kind of protection from these nefarious forces because you expect it. 
Now, while a lot of your writing and the assumptions people might make about you and your alliance with, I don't know, certain types of progressivism because of how, um, you know, how you're regarded as a result of your writing or certainly how you've been treated by the establishment. Um, You've said that your inspiration and your um, moral center is formulated in your relationship with your spirituality and your faith and your personal and profound connection with your father. How did your father um, verbally convey that ethos may i first ask you if uh, i recognize that's quite private but if whatever you're prepared to reveal and discuss about that and secondly i think a lot chris about how we've i don't obviously understand these kind of military conflicts in the way that you do but what has made me feel uncertain with the conflict in ukraine has been the idea that our culture has no moral center that we have no per, no value system upon which to call that we can't say look this is who we are this is what we believe in war is of course complicated but we have to behave in this way or we have to make these decisions or take these actions because of these reasons it seems like the objective and the agenda always comes first and the objective and agenda is always lined out and uh, laid out in the way that you've described you know in the manner that it was in central and latin america in the way that it was in the middle east usually financial imperatives usually you know, as you say courtiers pursuing power driven arguments so I want to speak to you again about your pers- how your va- father verbally outlaid this set of principles that have become your code for life and how you feel, uh, uh, let's call it sort of Western culture, has suffered as a result of having any kind of genuine moral code. Or Right. I, I, well, I want to be clear that that kind of moral code, as you call it, doesn't have to come out of a religious tradition. Uh, th- you know, there's a great line by the theologian uh, H. Richard Niebuhr who says religion's a good thing for good people and a bad thing for bad people. Uh, certainly, let's talk about uh, my uncle was uh, very cruelly treated, not only by the society, but by the church. Uh, in fact, of course, especially in many evangelical churches, we have a rash of suicides of GBLTQ uh, people. And I would argue that, that is, uh, those churches are guilty of murder. So the cruelty of the institution, I mean, the theologian Paul Tillich said every institution is inherently demonic, uh, including the church. And of course, my father was eventually pushed out of the very institution he served. So we have to separate the institution from what I would call the religious impulse. I teach in a prison in the college uh, credit program through Rutgers University. Most of my students are Muslim, uh, and I'm not trying to bring them to Jesus. I have a tremendous respect for Islam. I spent seven years uh, in uh, in the Middle East and, and uh, know, uh, you know, that uh, I, there are many kindred spirits, spirits who have risen up to fight the oppressor on behalf of the oppressed, uh, rooted in Islam or not rooted in any religion. So I just want to make that clear. Well, I think that when you uh, are brought up as I was in a, in, a, in a Christian household and you look closely at what happened to Christ, Uh, He was uh, uh, abandoned by his disciples and turned on by the mob uh, and crucified by the state as an insurrectionist. Uh, It was a pretty lonely death. Uh, And I think that's a pretty good lesson. The the term for it is bearing the cross. David Garrell wrote a very fine biography of Martin Luther King. uh, And we forget, by the way, that at the end of King's life, he was very lonely. The Black Power movement had arisen. He was booed in Watts. Uh, The younger followers in... uh, uh, in his movement, we're leaving to join uh, more radical groups. 
Uh, he was a very, very beleaguered figure, but he stood fast to nonviolence. It was a very beautiful moment when his movement's disintegrating, and he gets up and says, I take nonviolence to be my lawfully wedded wife. So uh, I, I think it comes out of that theological understanding that our goal is to stand, as the theologian James Cone says, always with the crucified of the earth. Uh, that, that's what it means to uh, lead a religious life. Uh, so that was imparted to me by my upbringing. But again, you can't teach morality, I believe. It, it, you show it. A lot, of, a lot of liberals speak a good game. I actually learned to hate liberals. I was at Harvard Divinity School because I lived in a housing project or across the street from a housing project in Roxbury and ran a small church. Uh, it was uh, brutal and violent. People were being literally warehoused. Uh, and I would take the green line 20 minutes into Cambridge for my classes with classmates who would uh, talk about empowering people they never met. Um, and if they would all, it was during the Sandinista government, they'd all go down and pick coffee for a week and come back and spend the rest of the semester talking about it. But they wouldn't come over into Roxbury. Uh, and that was a, that was a kind of uh, you know, important moment for me. I don't consider myself a liberal. Um, so, uh, and I'm kind of losing the thread of your other questions about Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I, the, so much of this is just about self-adulation. It's about us as good people. And I just also want to throw in there, having worked in places like Gaza and, and Yemen, and is this whole notion of some victims are worthy, especially if they're white, uh, and, and uh, people of color are not. Uh, so uh, it's horrible. I, I decry the war crimes in Ukraine. What do we have, about 150 or something children who have been killed? But in uh, 2014, it was 551 Palestinian children were killed in the Israeli assault that I think killed a total of 2,000 people. Well, well, their lives are just as precious and just as worthy as Ukrainian children. Uh, what about Yemen? Seven years. And of course, uh, the United States is funneling weapons to Saudi Arabia, the, uh, 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 the, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia murdered my friend and colleague. Jamal Khashoggi, uh, and of course now have just transferred the trial out of Turkey to Saudi Arabia, which means there will be no trial, no accountability uh, at all. It's this notion that some people count and some people don't. And I come out of a world where everyone counts, uh, and uh, all war crimes uh, have to be addressed. Otherwise, we don't live in a rule of law. Uh, so uh, yeah, you want to throw Putin in the hay, go ahead, but George W. Bush better be in the cell right next to him. So our war crimes and our victims are erased. And that's the just stinking hypocrisy uh, that you, you can't say virtually. Uh, and you can't say it because it's, it's this emotional love fest. We talk about a love fest with the Ukraine. I mean, let's be clear what the policy is in the Ukraine. It's to turn it into another Chechnya. It's to turn it into the old Afghanistan and make Russia bleed in their, in their language. But of course, the people who will truly bleed are the Ukrainians. It's extremely cynical. Given that you've said that these kind of challenges have always existed, uh, or, you know, have certainly have existed across your career, and you've sort of loosely described the geography, Central American conflict, CIA-sponsored operations there, and the Iraq war, with which, you know, most of our listeners will be somewhat familiar. And it was an unpopular war at the time. It was leveraged unfairly and duplicitously. It's ultimately been revealed. What do you imagine needs to happen domestically? What needs to happen politically 
in order for there to be a meaningful shift. Is this situation, in terms of, let's say, American foreign policy and what is veiled by it, is it really getting worse? Or has it always been like this? Or, or with the emergent you know, technological and communicative tools, namely, notably, social media, is the, is, are the conditions worsening? Um, what do you think needs to change in American cultural and political life? And at that, at the point of intersection there, which is you know the, the place where you are writing from, the place that you are writing about, informed by your morality, uh, uh, you know, which you are, you've been very clear is not a religiously underwritten, or it sort of is, but it needn't be. What do you think needs to happen domestically? You know, so firstly, I'm saying, do you think this situation is generally getting worse or is it, does it appear to or does it appear to be? And secondly, what kind of changes need to be instantiated in order to arrest, redress, reverse, alter this terrifying telos? In terms of censorship, it's getting worse because the tools are uh, so sophisticated. Uh, so, for instance, uh, these uh, digital media platforms, which are completely opaque, they know everything about us, we know nothing about them have the power to marginalize and shut down voices they don't like. Uh, we saw this on Overdrive in the weeks before the last election between Trump and Biden. Uh, Silicon Valley was working uh, uh, quite ferv fervently on, uh, for Biden. Uh, they locked Twitter out of its own, uh, locked the New York Post out of its own Twitter account when it uh, had uh, obtain the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop. Uh, the New York Times was calling it disinformation right out of the Russian playbook. Well, it turns out that all of the contents on the laptop were true. Uh, they weren't disinformation. Uh, uh, you saw hundred. we don't know, it's dark money, hundreds of millions of dollars pumped into the Biden campaign and advertisements. Uh, and then we, call, we saw Trump removed from social media, which I opposed, by the way, uh, because what, we can't give the power of censorship to these huge conglomerates uh, who are shrouded in secrecy, who have no accountability and no transparency. I didn't know I would be a victim uh, of YouTube or Google quite so quickly, uh, but I saw it coming. So yes, in terms of censorship, it's far worse uh, because if you go back a few decades, uh, we had a more diversified uh, uh, media landscape, alternative weeklies. We didn't, and we now have about six corporations that control the airwaves in the United States, including Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. Uh, uh, that's what about 90% of Americans watch uh, or listen to, and it's this complete uniformity of opinion. So you see, uh, the, all of the analysts and pundits are drawn out of the national security state or the military, and of course they all sit on boards like Raytheon are pulling in half a million dollars a year for that. That's never disclosed. Uh, in terms of is it worse? No, empire is, I mean, the, the core of empire is about the subjugation of other people, usually people of color, and the theft of their natural resources. That uh, remains totally intact. Uh, they wanted the oil fields in Iraq and they got them. Uh, so that remains the same. But I would say domestically, uh, of course, what is happening, and this is a characteristic of all late empire, is they're hollowing, hollowing the country out from the inside. I studied, uh, spent a year after my divinity degree at Harvard studying classics. So uh, it's just like the Roman Empire, where um, you're maintaining a one million man army uh, and, and the country and there's you know, people starving in the streets of Rome. So uh, that, that's what is happening. And then Alexander Berkman, the great uh, socialist, German socialist, who was killed with Rosa Luxemburg, assassinated, uh, called the military, the German military, the enemy from within. And that's right. 
uh, unless we break the back of the military, the military, which is unaccountable, it can't even be audited. Uh, it's, uh, the United States uh, spends more on its military. I don't know what the figure is, 700 and something billion, but there's all sorts of other expenditures that go to the military that aren't even on the official budget. Um, uh, then I think the next nine countries combined, including China and Russia. So that's the problem. And if you come to the United States, you just uh, you travel from the city. It's just one decayed ruin after another, this post-industrial landscape. And then, of course, to deal with the unrest is they use the forms of control on the outer reaches of empire, wholesale surveillance, militarized drones, militarized police that function as internal armies of occupation within especially poor urban areas and the carceral state. So we have 25% of the world's prison population. We're less than 5% of the world's population. 40% of the people in our prison have a prison system have never been charged with physically harming another person. You can spend your life uh, in an American prison on drug charges. It's insane. But again, that's a whole industry, a, a multi-billion dollar industry. And what's interesting is there's a lot of uh, a lot of the arms industry is also involved in profiting off the prison industrial complex. And people talk about private prisons, but they miss the point. Everything in prisons are privatized. So the phone service is privatized. The commissary is privatized. Medical is uh, privatized. Money transfer is privatized. And their lobbyists are all down there making sure that that prison system remains flush, that those uh, cages remain full because these bodies on the street of a deindustrialized Detroit don't make any money for the corporate state, uh, but they can generate uh, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 when they're locked uh, in a cage. Uh, you ask about democracy. We don't live in a democracy. We live in what the political philosopher Sheldon Woolen, uh, probably our most important political philosopher, called inverted totalitarianism. Inverted totalitarianism is essentially the old structure, again, like Republican Rome, you still had the Senate, you still had all of the symbols and the rhetoric, uh, but internally, uh, we, just as we do with the, you know, democracy and supposed elections and all this kind of stuff, uh, but internally the uh, corporations hold all of the levers of power, and of course they write the legislation. Uh, and that's why on all of the major issues there's no difference between Republicans and Democrats. They fight over fringe cultural issues. Uh, but on the defense budget, on trade deals, on wholesale surveillance, exposed to us by Edward Snowden, a clear constitutional violation. And uh, I, I look what they're doing to my friend Julian Assange. I was just uh, in London for his wedding. I was one of six guests. Uh, and then, of course, we get to the gate and with the kind of institutional sadism that characterizes all prisons, the guests weren't allowed in. Uh, but uh, Julian never committed a crime. Uh, Julian, uh, you know, unlike Daniel Ellsberg with the Pentagon Papers, he didn't actually uh, steal the documents. <laughs> he, he did what any publisher did and what I did when I worked, I published classified documents when I was at the New York Times. So uh, to hear the kind of rhetoric about Putin cracking down on the press, and it's true, and I stand in solidarity with all of those journalists, but then to ignore what we're doing to Julian is, again, this kind of uh, uh, deeply hypocritical can't that uh, is not only uh, disseminated by the ruling elites, but then echoed by their courtiers in the media. So basically what fascinates me listening to you, there are many things, but one thing in particular is that 
I'm assuming that you don't imagine that you have become more radical. And like a decade ago, you were a correspondent at the New York Times, and now you can't be on Russia Today. So you can, you are a good canary in the cage for observing the um, increase in censorship that has taken place. The second part of my question before was, you know, and, and when you sort of say that the the Democrats and Republicans quarrel over, uh, you know, fringe cultural issues, but the defense budget stays the same, you know, that 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 central core of issues remains unimpeded, unaddressed, broadly agreed upon. Does that suggest that there is room in American politics for a populist party that positions itself uh, primarily around ad addressing that disparity or addressing in particular those verboten uh, subjects. Do you think that that's plausible? What do you imagine would be the establishment response to a, 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 an emergent political movement? I spoke to lots of guests before about do you think that the Democrat Party could ever all, um, most people, some people are kind of, oh yeah, maybe it could, and Bernie Sanders or whatever, but you know, and what do you think of the emergence of uh, right wing populists like Trump and Thomas Frank, who's wrote uh, you know, extensively about the history of populism, says no such thing really as right-wing populism. Populism by its nature ought be about you know, the, the democratic rights of ordinary people and you know, is at odds with sort of right-wing philosophy. What do you think, Chris, about the well, potential for a populist uprising? Thomas Frank is right, but uh, right-wing populists use the populist rhetoric, as did Trump. Uh, remember, he was going to renegotiate NAFTA and he was going to raise... Uh, uh, tax or trade barriers so to protect jobs. He didn't mean it. Uh, and you go back, I don't want to, it's not Nazi Germany, but go back and look at the uh, you know, early 1930s. Uh, the, the Nazi, the fascist party were supporting the strikes in Berlin that are largely organized by the communists because they needed that rhetoric to entice people into the movement. So yeah, Thomas Frank is right. However, they will hijack that populist language, although of course they betray you as soon as they get into power. I was Ralph Nader's speechwriter. I, I know very well no what happens way. when you try and, uh, you try and uh, create a third party. The two ruling parties conspire to destroy you. Uh, Ralph, who's one of the most brilliant human beings I've ever met, uh, I, I wouldn't want to debate Ralph on a stage, and neither did they. So they made sure that Ralph never got any kind of... He could pull 10,000 people. I mean, Madison Square Garden, he didn't even have the money to rent it. Uh, he just charged people $2 at the door, and he filled the place. So... There with yearning was there, uh, but the networks, uh, uh, coupled with the ruling elites, conspired not only to essentially shut him out, but to demonize him, uh, as they have with, with Julian. Uh, and they will, uh, well, well, they did with me. I mean, I was booed off of a commencement stage for denouncing the war, and then the right-wing media grabs a 30-second clip of it and loops it. So every hour, they're like crucifying you and attacking you and... and uh, uh, you know, it's very effective character assassination. Um, so I know exactly what will happen. No, I think the only hope is to build a powerful union movement uh, that uh, can repeatedly strike uh, and begin to uh, disrupt the machinery of power. Uh, I think that the recent uh, organization by Amazon workers in Staten Island is a good example of what has to be done. Remember, Amazon poured in millions of dollars to break that strike, and really all sorts of dirty, making it hard to vote. Again, horrible character assassination against the leaders. Well, you know, if you want to know what they're uh, frightened of, look at what they attack. Um, so, you know, they put a black woman on the Supreme Court to 
you know, this is just childish. I mean, is Clarence Thomas uh, an asset uh, to uh, American jurisprudence because he's black? Uh, it, it matters what people stand for. It just, it doesn't matter whether they're a woman or gay or, I mean, so, but that's all you hear. Uh, that it doesn't, she, by the way, is uh, the reason she's there is because there's hardly a corporate case she didn't vote in favor of. So uh, that seizure of control, that corporate coup d'etat, which has already taken place, you serve, you can, as long as you're willing to serve corporate power, then they'll give you a place. If, you, if you're not going to serve it, they're, they're, they're going to shut you out just like they shut Nader out. So I think, I think really it's grassroots movement. I'm a strong supporter of Extinction Rebellion. I've taken part in Extinction Rebellion protests. Uh, uh, so I think that's, it's, you know, power comes from the ground up. Uh, yes, we need political leaders. I mean, look, what, what is a politician? A politician is designed left or right, largely to gaslight you and manipulate you. Uh, as Karl Popper figured out, the question is not how do you get good people to rule, how how do you stop people from ruling from doing as much damage to you as you can? And you do that through movements, especially labor movements. So there's a scene in Kissinger's memoir, I don't want anybody viewing this to go buy the book, where uh, Nixon has taken uh, city buses, uh, empty city buses, and ring the White House. There's tens of thousands of anti-war protesters, and Nixon's wringing his hands going, Henry, they're going to break through the barricades and get us. Well, that's where we want people in power to be. But Chris... If we are reliant on trade union movements and a rejuvenation of those atrophying institutions at this time where more and more technocratic centralization is occurring, do you not think we are yearning after the models of a century ago as AI uh, explodes and, and workers, broadly speaking, have less and less power? Also, are we, do you not think, missing a trick by using the same terminology that capitalists would use to define the role of the individual in a society, primarily as a worker, and that's where their role is and that's where their power is drawn from? I ask this in particular because your own personal power seems to be drawn from your sort of ancestral connection to your father and to your your uh, connection to your own faith. How can we regalvanize uh, society? How can we create movements unless there is a sort of a set of spiritual values that can be shared? I don't mean uniform. I mean a confederacy of people that are hmm, identifying with a set of values that are potent enough to necessarily include sacrifice. And I imagine that those, um, you know, those Amazon workers out there in Staten, you know, they would have sacrificed like the great union movements in my country, Britain would have done, you know, like throughout the sort of the mind closures and the radical social programs that took place in the 80s over here. And, I, you know, I understand the sacrifices and compromises that were made by those movements. But I also recognize that that. <clears throat> Isn't there a kind of nostalgia, Chris, in hoping that, that change can come from that direction? Doesn't there need to be a kind of, mm, pro, uh, what do I want to say, a kind of a revitalized folk movement where people are somehow drawing their potency from within themselves, from their connection to their land, from their connection to one another, which is obviously also going to bloody require that we overcome these cultural fringe uh, you know, conflagrations that we're all being mired in day after day, month after month, divided and conquered by them. So, yeah, do you think that, do you really think that the, like the union movement can do that? Ain't, ain't there got to be a spiritual component? Hasn't the failure of socialism been that it's sort of, a, it's lack of a kind of a spiritual center? Yes, because it creates community, number one, uh, and you can't sustain yourself under oppression unless you have community. That's why the culture works so hard to sell us the privatization of hope. Uh, 
uh, dig deep within yourself and focus on excellence and, you know, reality is never an impediment to what you desire. That's Oprah, that's the Christian right, that's Hollywood, that's everything, and that's a lie. Uh, because if they keep us atomized from each other, then we're powerless. So it comes from, that sustenance uh, comes from community. I mean, I see it in, 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 in the prison. Uh, you see it with uh, efforts to begin. When you organize, you, you shift your focus. You begin to understand where real centers of power lie. You can't believe that uh, uh, the reason Jeff Bezos has $180 million uh, and uh, buys a $500 million yacht uh, uh, is because of uh, black people taking your jobs. Uh, it's just so absurd that it, so I think that, that, that what we need are those kinds of communities of resistance. You know, in, in the prison, I see these amazing men, and I've taught in the women's prison too, of people with such incredible dignity and integrity and brilliance. I mean, the students I have turn their cells into libraries. I write about this in my new book, Our Class, Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison. But for them, it's about dignity. Uh, and uh, I was uh, teaching a class... Uh, it was called Conquest. We read Open Veins of Latin America, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and C.L.R. James's Black Jacobins on the Haitian uh, revolt, the, the only successful slave revolt in human history, and Haiti's been paying for it ever since. Uh, and uh, I was speaking at the, in uh, Montana, the University of Montana, so there was a week I wasn't there, and I'm in my hotel in Montana, and I get a phone call, and they say, this is the Special Investigations Division of the Department of Corrections of the state of New Jersey, are you aware that your students just led a sit-down strike in the prison? Now, I hung that up and just wept because they're not getting out of that prison. They knew very well what would happen, and it did happen. Their cells were totally strip-searched. They were threatened uh, with losing the very few privileges they had, their job, their right to be in the education uh, program, unless they, they were searching, of course, for the leaders. Uh, they found the leaders. Uh, and they sent them off to another prison in indefinite, indefinite solitary confinement. There was no surprises, but they did it anyway. And I think that that, that uh, understanding that uh, there's a moral imperative to resistance, a moral imperative to revolt. I mean, look back throughout history, uh, the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, Niebuhr calls it sublime madness, uh, but you look back through history, and it is that sublime madness, that attempt to resist Anyway, there's a beautiful book called Shielding the Flame. It's an interview with Marek Edelman, who was the deputy commander of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, the only one who survived. But he talks exactly about that. They knew they were doomed, but they rose up anyway. Uh, and I think just to retain, as you said, and you're right, that sense of, of, of self-worth, of empowerment, of dignity, uh, it comes through the act of resistance, even if we're not successful. Uh, and, and so, so much of the malaise, I think, within modern society uh, comes from not pushing back. And then every once in a while, you win. Uh, I just want to tell this one story from prison, after that class from Conquest I told you about. That one student arrested at the age of 14. His parents were dead. He was living in an abandoned house in Camden, New Jersey. He's 90 pounds. You know, cops in uh, inner city areas would just grab someone uh, force them to sign a confession, especially if they're illiterate, as he was, uh, and then the crime's solved. It was a rape and a murder. He didn't do it. He's in court. He's listening to it. He attempts to protest. It doesn't work. Remember, he's 14. They sentence him as an adult. He's not eligible to go before a parole board until he's 70 years old. And he's in that class. He's one of my best students, 
graduated summa cum laude from Rutgers. We got him out now. But uh, he said to me, I know I'm going to die in this prison, but I work as hard as I do because one day I'm going to be a teacher like you. And he walks out. That's hope. That's transformation. I, I could live on that for a very long time. It doesn't change the system of mass incarceration or, you know, the 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 vast power structure arrayed against us, no. Uh, but it's exactly that kind of hope that they want to crush. So uh, I, th I think ultimately hope is not rational. Um, and, and the secret of it is to build relationships with the oppressed, especially if you're white, male, American, privileged. Uh, privilege is blindness. Uh, uh, Shakespeare got that right in Lear. Uh, it is blindness. Uh, but I spent, of course, months of my life in Gaza. I, as I said, I speak Arabic. Uh, I have very close relationships with many Palestinians there. Uh, and yet, as, as hard as I worked to be bicultural, I understood that because of my privilege, there would always be a gap. I could never fully see what it was to be a Palestinian living in the world's largest open-air prison. And I think if you honor that gap, you can have real relationships. And those relationships are what keep me going. I mean, if you don't walk out of an American prison angry, then you don't have a heart. But it's when oppressed people become abstractions that we get into trouble. It's very beautiful what you said about hope and that hope is not rational. And I suppose that leads me to reflect on the limitations of materialist rationalism more broadly and our increasingly technocratic data-driven model that seeks to um, align all behavior in accordance with a kind of um, these models that mine consciousness, that direct behavior according to, even if you don't see it as nefarious, simply as a kind of a fundamentalist pursuit of financial goals, it, 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 it eliminate so much of the human experience we did a story on i do a youtube channel where i talk about news and we use your content a lot chris we all work like use your Substack articles and we you know read stuff out and commentate on it and that today we did one on that um you know that amazon are introducing an app that pre that, that prevents people from uh, like that they're going to encourage their workers to use it and potentially issue incentives like virtual badges and virtual stars and other things that are not actual while simultaneously prohibiting the use of particular language and words like restroom and uh, and right. union right oh. that's right at amazon you have to pee in a bottle <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's true no seriously it's nuts no i know i know i know um and it made me feel like that again this encroachment this uh, kind of annihilation of the human spirit that orwellian image of that that boot and that face uh, and again i feel that i wonder how given the conflict that often exists around spiritual ideas spiritual uh, spiritual notions can be promoted to the forefront by which i mean sort of quite simple a simple idea such as community, service, connection, and as well as the rather more demanding concept that material sacrifice may be required in order to achieve and attain spiritual goals. In fact, usually, perhaps even always is required in an increasingly materialistic, commodity-driven, nihilistic and empty cultural space where we're kind of offered 
uh, uh, sats impersonations of connection of uh, of even success of connection instead of uh, instead of some authentic iteration of those same yeah well russell you're you're very right i mean that is their goal and they know what they're doing uh they're not there's a wonderful book uh, called the peculiar institution which is fascinating because it's about slavery but it, he uses the slave manuals they had them used by slave holders uh and how to keep uh, slaves because the whites were a tiny minority on a plantation divided and set against each other uh, and so, you know, there's a, they're very sophisticated. The public relations industry after the arms industry is probably the most evil institution or, you know, uh, in modern society. Uh, they're going all the way to, back to Bernays and Le Bon and Trotter and everyone else. They know exactly how to manipulate us and they're very good at it. Uh, so, uh, yes, it is about community. I, I, I will go back to, you know, my own background. I asked the great radical priest Daniel Berrigan, who spent 23 months in a federal prison for burning draft records in the Vietnam War so kids uh, wouldn't uh, have to go off to the war, uh, how he defined faith. And he said, it's the belief that the good draws to it the good, even if empirically everything around you uh, says otherwise. And I think that's right. And, and, and not only that, but I, I, have, I think it's also empirically true. So I saw throughout my career how Oscar, I covered Oscar Romero in assassinated uh, Archbishop in, uh, in uh, El Salvador. I saw these magnificent figures rise up, uh, and, and the good does draw to it the good. I was in Venceslas Square in Prague during the uh, Velvet Revolution. I spent every evening in the Magic Lantern Theater with Václav Havel and all the other Dinsbier and Klaus and everyone else who would inherit the government. Uh, and I remember that moment when Marta Kubasheva, who was the great singer, very popular singer in Czechoslovakia, she sang a prayer for Marta, which was the anthem of defiance that was played in the 1968 Soviet invasion that overthrew Dubček and installed a pro-Soviet regime. Her uh, recording stock was immediately destroyed. Uh, she was banned from the airwaves. She spent the intervening years uh, working on an assembly line in a toy factory. She walked out on that balcony. There was half a million Czechs there. She began to sing a prayer for Marta, and everyone in that crowd knew every word, and most of them weren't even born. They weren't alive in 1968. That is the power of the good drawing to it the good, uh, and, and that's real. Uh, and oftentimes people who get up and have that courage, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, these magnificent figures, uh, people are frightened uh, of coming too close because uh, both King and, and uh, Malcolm knew in the end that they would be killed, um, but they stand anyway. And, and, and I'll tell you, in my prison and my prison uh, students, uh, Malcolm X uh, might as well be deified. Uh, that's often the first book they begin with, Malcolm X Speaks. Uh, so the good does draw to it the good. I mean, they even have, the, the prison authorities even have innocuous quotes from Malcolm on the walls of the prison classrooms like education is good or something i mean they won't put anything up there that malcolm <laughs> that malcolm you know that it's they sanitize king the same way with i have a dream speech king was a socialist uh um but even they know the power of malcolm that's pretty beautiful so we do have some of the um you know we have the icons and potentially valuable idols and we do have the ideals we do have uh, uh, i don't want to diminish it with the word paraphernalia but we do have some of the the, the objects and articles that faith requires we do have a, a, an understanding it, 
Do you feel with the the increase of censorship that we discussed at the beginning, with the social fracturing that we discussed now, the corporatization of previously previously social space, with the uh, with the uh, e- e- endless um, uh, exacerbation of what uh, Assange perfectly described when referring to Afghanistan of the transference of public funds into private hands, with the with the the industrialization of conflict, do you feel yet? hope and do you feel that there like when you talked about nada and how that was shut down do you feel that now given that there are that the means for communication is altered uh, whilst along with it the means to censor is, is is certainly keeping pace do you feel that some kind of uh, confederacy collaboration and alignment between trade union movements, spiritual movements, social justice movements, working class movements in in you know sort of in each country, do you th- do you think that there is a, a possibility for a different type of populism? Do you think that a simple manifesto could be drawn up? Do you, do you think that there is a, 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 a the potential for a new kind of in, internationalism? And I know people get scared when that's mentioned. A lot of people that certainly that follow my stuff because they're terrified of of like um post WEF WTO non elected centralized technocratic tyranny. The kind of you will own nothing and you will be happy stuff haunts a lot of people that um uh, populate the channels that that, that we communicate through. I just wonder, Chris, given that, like you know, that occasionally you um, are peppering some hope into this rather dreadful gruel <laughs> that you're serving. Do you think that there remains potential in spite of it all? Well, if we can't, if we don't resist, we can't use the word hope. Uh, and it is, I think, our moral duty to resist. I mean, we haven't even mentioned the climate crisis. Uh, which uh, rhetorically, at least the power elites will acknowledge, but are doing absolutely nothing to thwart. Uh, And of course, it's the global south, as usual, that will suffer the brunt of it first, but we're all going to get it. Uh, So uh, I think we have a kind of, I have kids, I mean, we have a kind of responsibility, especially if we have kids, to fight as hard as we can, uh, so that at least they say we tried. Uh, and, uh, and in that fight, uh, I think we uh, nurture and retain all of the values that you highlighted that are important, uh, a sense of community, a sense of dignity, and a sense of hope. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think it helps us uh, not to acknowledge how bleak it is. And that's, I spend a lot of time uh, doing that. There is a kind of, in American culture, this mania for hope. Uh, but the mania of hope is... Uh, kind of uh, self-delusion, because if, if, uh, if we become too hopeful, then uh, we, we don't actually confront the very dark forces that are arrayed against us uh, and, and where we are going. Um, in fact, the, the power, Václav Havel wrote this great essay, The Power of the Powerless, but he talks about in a totalitarian society, in a society uh, that essentially se- seeks to disseminate uh, and perpetuate itself through lies, the truth becomes more and more incendiary and they become more and more frightened of it. Uh, and I think that's right. Uh, and uh, the, the fact that uh, I've been pushed to the margins of the media landscape, I mean, why was I on RT? Well, I was on RT for the same reason Havel was on Voice of America. If you wanted to hear Havel, you couldn't hear him on any Czech uh, uh, outlet because he was a non-person. Uh, Havel had no more love for the policies of Washington 
than I do for Moscow. Uh, but it was either that or be silenced. And so what they do is they push you into those marginal spaces and then they demonize that space. I write for Shear Post, run by the great Bob Shear. He used to be the editor of Ramparts Magazine, which was the kind of great magazine of the 60s, never made a dime. Very funny, they, the Time Magazine said there was a bomb in every issue. Uh, I'd consider that a compliment. Uh, Bob uh, got the kind of idea that he would attract advertisers by putting a Pan Am Airlines ad that he stole off a of Time Magazine on the back of Ramparts, showed around and uh, you know, then they'd see him as respectable and he'd get advertisers. The result was Pan Am sued him uh, to take it off. Uh, but the alternative press, those of us who stood on the margins, have always shamed the traditional press into doing their job. That's what Bob did with Ramparts, COINTELPRO, that iconic photo of the little girl running down the road in Vietnam, burned by napalm. That was all Ramparts. And then every, they shamed, the same way Julian shamed the traditional press, the Guardian, El País, the New York Times, to do their job, which is why, of course, they immediately turned on him afterwards. Uh, so uh, we, we, have, we have a power that they're very frightened of if we have the courage to stand up and speak it. And if you stand up and speak it, it's one thing for me to speak it. They don't like me. Uh, but when you're an Edward Snowden or a Chelsea Manning or a Julian Assange or a Jeremy Hammond and you prove it by because you can't do investigative reporting. I should just throw that out. I, I was an investigative reporter for the New York Times. My colleagues at the paper can't get anyone to talk to them because as soon as they, their phones are all uh, monitored, they know the moment they speak to a New York Times reporter. So they said even if they're reading press releases, they're nervous. So the last mechanism we have to shine a light into the inner workings of power comes uh, from people with the skills like Chelsea Manning or Snowden or others to essentially expose it and look what they do to them. So uh, that's truth. I mean, Julian has exposed more truth about the global ruling elites than certainly anyone in our generation. Uh, and they are determined to destroy him. And he is not in either good physical or psychological shape in Belmarsh prison, which is the point. Uh, so uh, you see the power that we have when we have the courage to exercise it. Uh, but we shouldn't be naive about the fact that uh, when we truly confront these centers of power in a real way, uh, there's a cost. But it's worth paying. It's worth paying uh, because uh, I, I don't uh, look back on my life with regrets. And I was always, whether it was in El Salvador or Gaza, I covered the war in the former Yugoslavia, I was in Sarajevo, Kosovo. I always stood with those people who uh, were uh, suffering perhaps the most often globally the most horrific I was did the Sudan and the, uh, the uh, famine in the Sudan uh, you know I purposely put myself in that place and and uh, never paid the kind of price that they pay at all I mean what I pay is nothing compared to what they endure uh, but I, I look back on all of that with a great deal of pride and and also the fact that I didn't back down. I didn't waste it. I don't look at being pushed out of the times or having my all my stuff disappear. I don't look at that as uh, something of regret. I, I look at that as kind of uh, proof that uh, that I've been affected. Yeah, I know that there was like interviews with Zizek and Snowden and stuff on there like it was not state propaganda for Russia that they were censoring and removing. 
Yeah, well, that's a, a you know a beautiful and obviously commendable approach. Do you know much about the twelve steps, Chris? Where like a you know sort of like the sort of twelve step a, a, a recovery from addiction model that sort of begins with an acknowledgement of powerlessness and unmanageability. The, s- the second step is about uh, coming to believe that power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity. The third one is uh, come making a decision to turn your will and life over to the care of God as you understand God and non-exclusive and, and non-didactic um, or, or at least not prescribed god i feel like often that like a simple piece of folk culture like the 12 steps is a powerful tool in addition to it's like the the spiritual principles that are pretty i would argue universal the kind of organizational principles are somewhat uh, anarchic i.e fully democratic and each group is fully autonomous and self-organizing one of the problems i think with localism and collectivism as a model is that it's very difficult i have read and i'm beginning to understand to countenance and confront a hegemony without an alternative hegemony because how do you you know confront this these media behemoths this military industrial complex these globalist ideals and institutions that transcend democracy you know with a group of people sort of sitting around eating carrots you know sooner or later there has to be some kind of centralized ideology there has to be some kind of unified and organized stand it's a sort of an uh, an enormous challenge and it's like an obviously um it's going to require sort of a significant upheaval and were it not for my own faith in god i would deem it impossible but because of this idea that you know the primary reality is the reality of consciousness and and the primary um uh, aims and modes are those of the spirit and the soul as best as i can interpret them with my own obvious limitations this this is where I draw hope from. What do you think when it comes to sort of like the personal fallibility of great people? Like, you know, you spoke about Malcolm X and sort of like his history, you know, like was you know, kind of troubled and mind for King and like it was a person that I feel like is at points been on the verge of being retrospectively cancelled on account of the sort of adultery and stuff. What do you feel about like, uh, you know, personal morality and how it and, and our sort of, I don't know, tolerance and understanding of fallibility when with people that have made those kind of sacrifices, those kind of leaders and stuff? Well, they're, we're all flawed human beings. That's what it means to be a sinner. Um, you know, we're all bastards, but God loves us anyway. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't think we should turn them into plastic saints. Uh, uh, we should be able to criticize. I would, I would say that King and, and Malcolm are certainly within the United States are two greatest contemporary prophets, uh, but they aren't uh, uh, without their own failings and we have to acknowledge those failings uh, but we can't condemn their entire lives especially with the courage uh, that both of them had uh, especially at the end of their lives when they just stood fast uh, knowing the cost uh, King denouncing the war in 1967 at Riverside Church uh, it, it, he angered Johnson Johnson pulled the FBI details that were protecting him and both Johnson and King knew what that meant so uh, yeah, of course, they're, they're, they're human beings like all of us. And uh, there are, you know, there are activities that we all, all of us engage in that are, uh, you know, it's, the, it's what that line from Paul, the, the evil that I do, I don't want to do. I mean, you know, that, that, that I think, by the way, is, comes out of war. My experience in war is that you understand that the line between the victim and the victimizer is razor thin. Under certain circumstances, we could all do horrible things. And I actually think that understanding that evil within us, the capacity we have for evil is the best protection, but it's there. 
Uh, and of course, with the Christian right or with the jingoistic nationalists, evil is external, as if somehow, like in the war on Terry's to fight with Christopher Hitchens, who I never particularly liked, uh, but it was if we eradicate the Muslims, uh, you know, then evil will disappear. Well, this is really dangerous. Um, the, the greatest protection is evil is against evil is understanding our own capacity for evil and the fact that uh, the, the position, the moral position that we may champion is never quite so moral from the perspective of the other. Uh, that, that, that having that ability to uh, step out and look at ourselves objectively and critique ourselves objectively is what kind of keeps us uh, straight with the understanding that we all, uh, all of us, uh, do things within our lives that are, that we, for which we need forgiveness. I mean, I hate going back always to this theological language, and yet I think that there are many core words uh, that come out of any religious tradition that are, that are worth considering, including forgiveness and including redemption. I mean, many of my students committed murder. Uh, and, uh, and they have to deal with that, and, 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 and it's hard for them. Uh, and, um, uh, uh, you know, that there's a lot of self-loathing that goes into that. Uh, and a, lo a lot of them spend the rest of their lives essentially trying to atone for it. It's why in, in the prisons, the Muslim faith, I mean, they are very, very observant Muslims. Um, they don't even like it when I curse. So, uh, but I, I, I do believe in redemption. I do believe in forgiveness. I do believe in these these qualities, uh, and I think they come out of any particular faith tradition, and they're important. Chris, thank you very much for your time in the last hour. I'm looking forward to reading more of your work. I'm going to check out our class, Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison. And it's been very, I've really enjoyed uh, listening to the personal motivations and your personal set of principles, as well as hearing your perspectives, which I always enjoy and find edifying about geopolitics or the civil rights and and the you know the harbinger component that comes with much of your writing. I, I love it, but it was also beautiful to meet you as a man and to hear about your inspiration, your connections, your father, your connections, your faith, and your understanding of service and duty i think it's um yeah it's, it really helps me to understand your writing better thanks so much chris well thanks for doing it russell thank you for listening to under the skin with chris hedges please let me know what you think tweet me at rusty rockets using the hashtag under the skin if you enjoyed this conversation you might like other episodes featuring thomas frank matt taibbi if you're not a member of my mailing list yet you should join my mailing list over at russellbrand.com where you'll learn about all sorts of special events not least i'm doing a one day event with wim hoff in july in the uk we've only got a thousand tickets if you want to register your interest get on my mailing list right now if you're not following the youtube videos have a look at them please for god's sake and do you meditate if you don't meditate you should and you can listen to a weekly meditation on above the noise on this platform luminary if you're enjoying this conversation you might like other episodes featuring thomas frank he talks about populism and matt taibbi another fantastic uh, journalist who gets a name check in this conversation with chris hedges and of course remember if you want to give over 10 minutes of your day just to meditation in a discourse 
self-discovery. Please listen to Above the Noise. We release a new one every Wednesday. Also, remember my YouTube channel, Awakening. That's like a, It's not like the main channel where I'm trying to bring down the government and the state and criticising the media. It's much easier and cosier and focused on well-being and personal development. Awakening. Have a little look at that as well. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary.